Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 57 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversation based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and along with me, as always, is Chad Knight. How's it going? All right. So today is March 1st, and we figured what better time to do an episode about, wait for it, marches! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're, we're clever and stuff. (laughs) So today we're going to take some time and talk about our favorite instrumental pieces that fall into the category of a march. Now, most marches are designed to help someone perform a movement of some sort, like marching, walking, dancing, whatever, in a solid time rhythm, and often but not always, they're used in some sort of military capacity. These pieces and their rhythm can often translate to parades with marching bands. You know, I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of these before. You may not even know, some of the titles that we're going to talk about here, you may not know the title, but then you're like, okay. Yeah, I yeah. did that with uh, yeah, a few of them, actually. Exactly. So... We're going to leave this one pretty wide open, but we will have one stipulation, and that's we're going to only do one one march per composer. We could have easily filled the whole episode with a couple of these individuals, but where's the fun in that? So, make sure your boots are secured and get ready to step in time while we get this show started. Woo! How's it going, sir? <laughs> it's going pretty well, and I'm going to just going to put this one out here. Chad was less than thrilled when I told him I want to do a march episode, so we'll see if his opinion changed a little. No, I'm still less than thrilled. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but it's, it's you know... It's opening yourself up to a new genre. It's a new... Well, it's not even a new genre, because a lot of this, I wouldn't consider them marches. I would consider them classic music, no, or classical course. music. Right. So, as far as that goes... I love classical music, but when you when you first brought the idea to me, I'm like, why? <laughs> what is the purpose? But, you know, I guess maybe it has changed a little bit because going through these, I'm like, wait a second. Not all marches have to be like classical music, though. Right. Some of them have a pretty good upbeat to them. Well, right. And some of them are relatively modern mm-hmm. in the scope of things. Absolutely. All right, so why don't we go ahead and we'll get started with our liquored up. And this week it was my turn. So. Yes, and I think we need to get drinking here. Otherwise, <laughs> this is going to be a long episode. All right, so I picked up Shiner Homespun Cream Ale. It's put by the, uh, what is that, Spotzel Brewery in Shiner, Texas. The It's a 5% alcohol by volume, which I'm a little surprised how low that is, to be quite honest. Yeah. 12-ounce um, bottle, brown bottle, smells actually pretty good. And... Really, not a whole hell of a lot to say about it. It's a really very, it's a very big red, white, and blue bottle. It's very patriotic. Yes, it's very patriotic. Very kind of reminds you of that like Fourth of July almost. Mm-hmm. So. And like I said, I love the smell. It smells on very it. good. So let's go ahead and give it a shot. All right. Ooh, oh, I like that. Not a fan of the back end, but I like the I like the flavor. The back end tastes like I just ate raw pumpkin. You know, now that you mentioned that, I, I kind of taste that, but to me, it kind of tastes like a watered-down cream soda almost. I get that on the front end. I get that a little bit on the back, but more so on the front. But, all right, so 
Well, let's just get in there rating this one because I'm. Mm. I'm giving it a bar. Thumbs down. All right. Not a fan. Not a fan. Um, I think it would be better if it didn't have that back end of pumpkin. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it tastes like watered down cream, like watered down cream soda followed by raw pumpkin. Okay. And you're not a pumpkin fan, are you? I am a pumpkin fan. Just, but... just not in anything but pumpkin pie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got that there. So why don't we go ahead and move on to the trivia. Trivia. This now, could be a bad week because this could make me 500 if I get this wrong. It could. And, um, well, you're 14 and – what the hell did I say? 14 and 12 or 14 and 13? Damn it. i got to look at my old notes. I, I, I'm having problems. No, you, you actually were put to 14 and tw- – Oh, 14 and 12. Okay. Yeah, so you're not going to be 500 if you lose this one. Uh, I still have a little breathing room. Uh. Yes. Um, and I'm going to admit, though, unless you did your research, you may not get this one. So – John Philip Sousa, a.k.a. the American March King, served in the U.S. Marine Corps and, or Corps? Corps. Corps is a dead person. Well, with an E on it, yeah. But then again, well, we're going to get into that some other time. Served with the Marines. Okay. And reached the rank of what? What was his final rank in the Marines? Okay. If you did your research and paid attention, you'll know this because that was actually part of that's in there. So, again, John Philip Sousa, a.k.a. American March King, served in the U.S. Marines. What rank did he get? Okay. So I put you at 14 and 13 right away, or do you want to make a guess later? I'll make a guess later. All right. I'm going to write it down right now. And just, yeah, don't write fuck you on the paperwork either. So <laughs> this I is my write, answer. <laughs> I will write fuck you on the paperwork if I want to. <laughs> That's not a correct answer. <laughs> All right. So why don't you go ahead and start this one out? All right, so I'm going to start off with uh, the Nutcracker March by Piotr Ilyevich Tchaikovsky, better known as Peter. Let's go with that. All right, so the classic Nutcracker Ballet has probably one of the most recognizable pieces of music in the Nutcracker March, or also known as the March of the Toy Soldiers. I have loved music such as this for a long time. No, not marches, but classical music. And that is what this is. And, yes, it's also a march. But let's get this whole thing started and get that flavor of a march in your mouth and let's take a listen. So Tchaikovsky was a Russian composer of the Romantic period, some of whose works are among the most popular music in the classical repertoire. He was the first Russian composer whose music made a lasting impression internationally, bolstered by his appearances as a guest conductor in Europe and the United States. Tchaikovsky was honored in 1884 by Emperor Alexander III and awarded a lifetime pension. Despite his many popular successes, Tchaikovsky's life was punctuated by personal crisis and depression. Contributory factors included his early separation from his mother from boarding school, followed by his mother's early death, the death of his close friend and colleague Nikolai Rubinstein, 
and the collapse of one endearing relationship of his adult life, which was his 13-year association with the wealthy widow Nadenza von Meck. His homosexuality, which he kept private, has traditionally also been considered a major factor, though some musicologists now downplay its importance. Tchaikovsky's sudden death at the age of 53 is generally ascribed to cholera. There is an ongoing debate as to whether cholera was indeed the cause of death and whether his death was accidental or self-inflicted. There is a theory he was blackmailed, forced to commit suicide. So the song itself is very much a part of Christmas. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a part of the Nutcracker Suite, the Nutcracker Ballet, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's beautiful music. It's very telling music. It's like mm-hmm. you know exactly what's going on. Even if you're not sitting there watching the ballet... You kind of know what's going on. Absolutely, and if have you seen the actual performance of it before? I have. Yes, it's I've seen it on public television. I think live and in some capacity or somewhere. It's if you have never been to any ballets in your life or anything like that because it's just dancing people. It's absolutely worth it. Oh yeah, absolutely. The music is fantastic. It tells a great story. It's it's very performance dance. You can know exactly what's going on. And you're right. It's classic Christmas. I mean, yep. It's there's. You can't think of Christmas without hearing this. Right. And, and Tchaikovsky is one of my favorite classical composers. Mm-hmm. So that just, in my mind, that just doubly, you know, it's, does... It's just, just a total bonus right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I was a big fan of Tchaikovsky as well. He's got a lot of great pieces, not just Christmas stuff, but other ones that, you know, once we, you know, if we end up getting talking about classical music, I'm sure he'll be on our list. Oh, he, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. I think one of my favorite pieces of music is his 1812 Overture, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Absolutely, and it's, and especially if it's played, have you heard it played on guitar? No. There's a couple of rock artists that have done that, and it's it's just like, holy shit, this is great. It raises the hair on your arms. Nice. It's amazing. All right, so what are you going to start off with? All right, I'm going to start off with a German one, and it's called Der Konigratzer March by Pifke. And if I killed the name, oh well. I can tell I'm really broken up about it, can you? So, Johann Gottfried Pifke. There's a name. No shit, right? Was a German composer and conductor that was born in 1817. He was known for his military marches and was a bandmaster for the 8th Infantry Regiment in Berlin. He lived all of his life and served in Germany, working as a musician. His most famous marches were Prussia's Glory, written in 1871 after Prussia's victory in the Franco-Prussian War, the Dupler Schanzen Sturmarsch, which was composed and played on the front lines at the Battle of Dibble to signify the beginning of the assault, and this one, again, the Der Konigsgraf Marsch, which was composed in commemoration of the Battle of Konigsgratz, which was a victorious battle for the Prussians against Austria. Many of the marches he wrote were on the battlefield themselves and finalized when things settled down. He earned multiple medals in his career, the Duple Storm Cross, the Golden Medal of Emperor of Austria-Hungary, the Royal Order of the House of, oh God, Hanzeren, and the Iron Cross Second Class and the Prussian Crown Order before passing away in 1884. He was very proud of his heritage and due to his outspoken demeanor, Pifke is actually considered a derogatory name for a German in Austria. Really? Yeah, so if, if you're ever in Austria and someone calls you a Pifke, that's not a good thing. Punch him in the throat. Pretty much. So, not sure if his family should really be proud or offended that the legacy has lived on, but whatever. <laughs> now, 
The marsh was composed in 1866. It's a common military-sounding marsh and is still used in German parades to this day. Not so much in Austria because it's a reminder that they lost a battle. Let's go ahead and take a quick lesson. It's said that this was one of Hitler's favorite pieces of music and was usually played whenever he showed up in public. Where I first heard this and liked it was in a movie. It was played during the scene where Henry Jones Sr. and Jr. go to Berlin to get Sr.'s diary back from a Nazi book burning. Of course, I'm talking about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, even though I have less than zero sympathies or ties to any of the idealisms exhibited in that movie or scene, public service announcement, I have to say that the music was spot on for military-sponsored gatherings or rallies. I don't know why, I just really enjoy this piece of music. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, thank you, Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is very marchy and very Germany. Germanic. Germanic. It's very military in style. I like it. The pomp and circumstance that it inspires, especially for a young soldier when getting ready to go off to war, has to be mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. It's a great piece of music. Easily the best march on this list. Really? Yeah. That surprises me. Really? I mean, why? There, there's a lot of good ones on here. Oh, there are. I'm a little surprised you find this one to be the best. This this was the one I enjoyed the most. All right. Very good. So we got next. Uh, so now we're going to go a little more modern. Okay. We're not talking 1876. We're talking 1976. What? Yeah. The main title from Silent Movie. <laughs> well, I see what you thought of that. <laughs> so it's the main title from Silent Movie by John Morris. Now this rousing piece of music is the main title song for the 1976 Mel Brooks vehicle, Silent Movie. So Silent Movie is an American satirical comedy film co-written, directed by, and starring Mel Brooks, and released by 20th Century Fox on June 17, 1976. The ensemble cast includes Dom DeLuise, Marty Fieldman, Bernadette Peters, and Sid Caesar, with appearances by Anne Brancoft, Liza Minnelli, Burt Reynolds, James Caan, Marcel Marceau, and Paul Newman playing themselves. Holy Lord. I know. Isn't that where's, where's Madeline Kahn, though? I know. I don't know. That would have been, that would have been perfect. But while indeed silent, except for one word, music, and numerous sound effects, the film is a parody of the silent film genre particularly the slapstick comedies of Charlie Chaplin, Max Sennett, and Buster Keaton. Among the film's most famous gags is the fact that the only audible word in the film is spoken by Marcel Marceau, a noted mime. So, sound is a big factor in the film's humor, as when a scene that shows the New York sky city skyline begins with the song San Francisco, <laughs> only to have it come to a sudden stop as the musicians realize that they are playing the wrong music. They then go into, I'll take Manhattan instead. A play on the current trend of large corporations buying up film studios is parodied by the attempt of the Engulf and Devour Corporation to take control of a studio. And this is, of course, a thinly veiled reference to Gulf and Western's takeover of Paramount Pictures. Now, I have only seen this movie once, 25 years ago, and I remember hating it. 
But the music is amazing. Let's take a listen. John Leonard Morris, who was born October 18th, 1926, and unfortunately passed away January 25th, 2018. Oh, really? Recently? Yeah. Was an American film, television, and Broadway composer, dance arranger, conductor, and trained concert pianist. He collaborated with filmmakers Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder from the 1950s through the 1970s. Morris helped to compose incidental music and dance numbers for a number of Broadway productions, including Wildcat, Hotspot, Baker Street, Deer World, Mac and Mabel, and Hamlet. He had written and produced his own musical, A Time for Singing, released in 1966. Morris worked with Mel Brooks starting with Mel Brooks' first film, The Producers, prior to this, and two ha- the two had worked together on two musicals, Shinbone Alley, 1957, and All-American, 1962. Morris did the original arrangement for Springtime for Hitler and the rest of the film's underscore. Morris continued to work with Brooks on 20 of his films, including Blazing Saddles, for which he received a co-writing credit Oscar nomination with Brooks for the film's opening song. Young Frankenstein, for which he scored its famous Transylvanian lullaby, Lullaby, and The Elephant Man, for which he was nominated for a Grammy for its score. Only two Brooks films did not feature Morris's music, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and Dracula, Dead and Loving It, were both composed by uh, Hummy Man, in an interview with Film Score Monthly, Brooks explained that Morris couldn't do the music for Men in Tights or Dead and Loving It due to other commitments. This is a great march. Sorry, you mentioned Young Frankenstein. The first thing that comes to mind is, Look on the <laughs> Did you see... Actually, I have to bring this up now because you brought that up. But did you see the meme I put out on Facebook today? Mm-mm. It's a picture of a Ritz with Vladimir Putin on it. Nice. And it says, When you're blue and you don't know... Where to go to? And Why like, don't you go? go to where fashion sits? Putin on a Ritz. That is delightful. Yeah, it was it was hilarious. But anyway, to move on, it, it's a great march. It's it's got that definite you know march feel to it. That doof, 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 doof. keeping keeping time. Right, and uh, you know it's for a Mel Brooks movie. I was gonna say a great movie, but it's really now I watched this 25 years ago, so I was like a teenager at the time. Yeah, so, 25 years ago was teenage years. Shut up. It was for me, too. I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, I think now if I watched it, it might ring differently. Well, it's probably an appreciation of different things. Like, back right. then it was more sight gags, but now you'd probably get the sight gags more than you right. did back then. But anyway, what, what is your thought on this one? You know, this is one of those Mel Brooks movies. It's one of the few that I've not actually seen. Okay. So, I hadn't really been part of this music until I was brought up on this one here. It's a good piece. It follows the rules for being a march and it just, it works well for the movie. Alright, fair enough. Really don't have a lot to say about it. I gotta say it again. Yuck! I took another drink of that beer. I'm not hating it, actually. It it still tastes like pumpkin. And we've had a pumpkin ale, remember? Christmas time. That didn't taste at all like pumpkin. (laughs) I don't agree agree with that. It tastes more like chai, actually. The... Uh. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, pumpkin spice is basically a chai spice. Right, exactly. All right, so what do you got next, man? Next, we've got The Funeral March of a Marionette by Gounod. Now, Charles Francois Gounod was a French composer, imagine that, born in 1818. His parents were artistic as well. Uh, His mom was a pianist, and his dad was an artist. (laughs) Pianist. Shut up, I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) He was taught the piano at an early age and went to the Paris Conservatory. He studied many different styles and started writing. After leaving, he considered the priesthood before taking the oath-slash-orders. He changed his mind and went back to art. He completed his first Mass, St. Cecilia Mass, in 1854, and his first symphony, Symphony No. 1, again, imagine that, Right, right. in 1855. Fanny Mendelssohn, Felix's sister, introduced Gounod to box keyboard music, and that was when he first started to revere Johann's, Johann Sebastian. Using the knowledge of the well-tempered clavier, he wrote Ave Maria in 1859. When he first dabbled in writing opera, it was 1851's Sappho, and it was a colossal failure. I mean, like, crash and burn. Okay. Terrible. It didn't, he didn't really give up, though, and eventually released what's best known for, and that's 1859's Faust. Starting in 1870, he lived in England and was the first composer, conductor, I, excuse me, of what would become the Royal Choral Society. He continued to compose, most of his work being vocal, except for a funeral march for a marionette. Prior to his passing in 1893, he went back to religious music composing for the Pontifical Anthem, which is the Marche Pontificale, in 1869, which became the official national anthem of Vatican City in 1949. His last work was a requiem for his grandson that he had just completed before passing. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to the funeral march. Funeral March of a Marinette, many people recognize this piece, but not really because of the name. It's like one of those words, like they snap their fingers like, I know this. But then when they realize it, it's like, oh, okay. Its resurgence was it was used as the theme song for Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1955. Now, apparently Old Al was profoundly moved by the piece, so much so that he handpicked it himself for the show. Normally they have like producers and shit to do that, but he Mm -hmm. did it himself. Right, and he had heard it originally in... uh silent film from 1927. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right but, now. But, I mean, it just, like, as soon as he heard it, it was mind-blown, right. and that's why I did that. Now, it's a good thing because the the music kind of sets the tone for the show. I mean, it's it's plotting, but it's deadly fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like what you did there. All right. So what do you think, aside from stealing your thunder? Well, this classical march has been used in countless Halloween compilations and cartoons that focus around Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, it's that plotting, that very, like, almost like, you can almost see somebody tiptoeing down a dark hallway kind of thing. I also had in there that it was used as a theme song for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I love this piece of music, and I'm, I'm glad it's part of the list. I don't have a whole lot to say about it that you didn't cover, but it's just a fun piece of music. All right, so why don't you go ahead and take us to our next one. All right, so up next we have The Prince of Denmark's March by Jeremiah Clark. Commonly called the Trumpet Voluntary, is a musical composition 
Written uh, circa 1700 by English Baroque composer Jeremiah Clark, who was the first organist of the then newly rebuilt St. Paul's Cathedral. Popular as wedding music, the march was played during the wedding of Lady Diana Spencer and Prince Charles at St. Paul's Cathedral in 1981, and during the wedding of Prince Joachim of Denmark and Alexandra Manley in 1995. The march was broadcast often by the BBC Radio during the World War II, especially when programming was directed to occupied Denmark, since the march symbolized the connection between those two countries. The broadcasts were introduced by the first bars of the tune voiced over by the words, Her Air London, BBC Sender Till Denmark, uh, which translates to, This is London, BBC is broadcasting to Denmark. In Denmark, the march thus became strongly associated with the opposition to Nazi occupation and propaganda. It is still performed during the annual celebrations of the liberation. For many years, the trumpet voluntary remained the European service signature tune of the BBC World Services. It is the core march, both slow and quick, of the British Army's Royal Army Chaplain's Department. Why don't we take a listen? Jeremiah Clark was an English Baroque composer and organist, best known for his trumpet voluntary, a popular piece often played at wedding ceremonies. The exact date of Clark's birth has been debated. Some sources give the date of birth of 1673, and the Dictionary of National Biography states that Clark is said to have been born in 1669, though probably the date should be earlier. Most sources say that he was thought to have been born in London around 1674. Clark was one of the pupils of John Blow at St. Paul's Cathedral and a chorister in 1685 at the Chapel Royale. Between 1692 and 1695, he was an organist at Winchester College. Then between 1699 and 1704, he was an organist at St. Paul's Cathedral. He later became the organist and gentleman extraordinary at the Chapel Royale, he shared that post with fellow composer William Croft, his friend. They were succeeded by John Blow. How's that for a last name, though? Blow. It I certainly mean, doesn't suck. Aha! But um, shh. <laughs> you know, this is one of those. This is one of those. I did not know it as Prince of Denmark's March. I knew it as Trump and Voluntary. But you know, when I started looking it up, and I'm like, oh, that one sounds interesting, and then I hit play on it, and I'm like. I know that one. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely one of those. I like this piece of music. I I don't always picture it as a wedding march, though. You know, it's more of a recessional to me than a, than a march in kind of thing. But, you know, from time to time you do hear it at the wedding still. So, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on this one? I'm, gonna, I'm kind of in the same park as you were, too. Is I didn't know it as the Prince of Denmark's March. I knew it more as Trumpet Voluntary because in one of my music appreciation classes in college, um, we actually listened to this one, and it was kind of a listening contest where we had to realize where it was from. And, of course, the guy, the teacher who may or may not have been straight was all about <laughs> Princess Diana's wedding, okay. which, you know, of course brought that up there. 
it's, it's a very regal piece. I don't know if it's really military. I mean, because it doesn't, especially so many times that we see it in a wedding, either processional or recessional, trying to put it to military just doesn't seem to work for me. Right. And, and it does say it's military, but I forget what group it's the... The British Army's Royal Army Chaplain's Department. So it's the priests. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that makes sense. You know, but at the same time, too, as like a military march, it's got the components for it, but I don't think it would work. But for that purpose, I think it'd be just fine. It's a great piece. I've heard it done on the organ. I've heard it done on violin, but brass is where it's at. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If you hear this one, I mean, it's trumpet voluntary, for God's sakes. If you hear it played on anything but, you're messing up. I would agree. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. What do you got? Next, we have the Colonel Bogey March by Kenneth Alford. Now, Kenneth Alford used the pen name was the pen name of Frederick Joseph Ricketts, which I would go by a pen name too. He was an English composer born in 1881. He first got involved in music and playing piano and organ for the church. Orphaned at age 14, his dad died when he was seven. He was cloistered with the church and would often hear street performers and bands, including German bands and the Salvation Army bands. They had a band? I thought it was just Bells. No, at one time the Salvation Army had a band. Okay. I don't know if they still do, but... <laughs> it just made me think of... Uh, it's. I'm sorry, but this is totally off topic, but it made me think of a SmackDown moment where King and, and Jerry were talking, and he talked about the Canadian Army and how the Salvation Army could kick the Canadian Army's ass. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. And the instruments made him had such an impact on him that he decided he wanted to be part of an Army band. He lied about his age and enlisted with the Royal Irish Regiment at age 14. Wow. Yeah. To I always be, love that. I always love those stories that start off with, he lied about his age. I mean, that would be like a 14-year-old boy walking up to me and going, I'm 21, and me going, all right. Yeah, exactly. They didn't really background check that much, apparently, well, back in the day. Well, it not even background. It's, they, they were just looking for warm bodies. Well, fair enough. And that was in 1895, to be a band boy. <laughs> Sounds so gay. Sorry. So, through ambition and good nature, he was... Better a band boy than a boy band. There you go. He was recommended entry in the Royal Military School of Music, which he started in 1904. Again, he was so well-liked that he stayed on after graduation, and finally in 1908 was given his own band and title of Bandmaster of the 2nd Battalion of Argyle, or Argyle, maybe, and Sutherland Highlanders. That was well and good, but he wanted to compose. But that was frowned upon for commissioned officers. So what did he do? He made up a pen name. He can't sense. Exactly. He continued to write and compose even during wartime. In fact, that's when the Colonel Bogey March was written. As World War I raged on, in the 1920s, he moved on from the Army to the Navy. Okay, he went and moved on from the Army um, to Navy as he wanted to stay with the band versus getting a legit commission but lose the band. Finally... Though he commissioned as lieutenant in the Royal Marines Band in 1927, which is where he finished his career. His final military rank was full major that was conveyed to him on 4th of July, 1942. Kind of cool. What a cool day, right? He finally retired in 1944 due to his health and died a year later in his home. The Colonel Bogey March was composed in 1914. It's supposedly inspired by a military man golfer that whistled the part of the known bridge before yelling for that's so bogey golfing. I guess that kind of is where it's still stuck. Why don't we go ahead and take a quick listen? Mm-hmm. 
Now, the sheet music was fantastically popular, and in World War II, the song became part of British life when the tune was set to Hitler Has Got Only One Ball, <laughs> which was original goring, but they changed it for popular culture. Nice. It's been used in a ton of films, including The Breakfast Club and The Parent Trap, but nowhere, to me at least, was it better known than one of the main themes in 1957's The Bridge and the River Kwai. I didn't see that movie, but I know it's got um, Obi-Wan, um, the hell's his name, um, Alleganis. Oh, okay. It's got him in there, but I do remember it being in Spaceballs with the Dinks as the oh, little Jawa guys. Yep. They always did that, and... It's almost like when somebody is being forced to do something in slave labor, that's when it's played. It's always a whistled theme. I loved it. I enjoyed it a lot. So what do you think of it? Well, it's a classic piece of march music, and it has a happy bounce to it. And the naming's a little weird. And I was hoping that, since I didn't do the research on it, that you would uh, you know, kind of give us what the story behind it was, which you did, so thank you for that. Yay! Um, I really enjoyed this piece of music. I mean... There's not a whole lot to say about it. You know, like you said, Spaceballs. I believe it was also used in um, Snow White. Isn't that what the dwarves whistled as well? Um, I'll be honest. I don't think I've ever seen Snow White. Oh, really? I yeah. think it was what the what the dwarves whistled off well, on their way to I know work they too. did Hi-Ho. The Hi-Ho, it's off to work we go. And I'm not sure if it's the same or not, but write in if you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's been years since I watched Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But, um, but yeah, no, really enjoyed it. All right, so what do you got next? All right, so up next, and I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'm going to try my best. Intracte from Patton by Jerry Goldsmith. So Patton is a 1970 American epic biological war film about U.S. General George S. Patton during World War II. It stars George C. Scott, Carl Malden, Michael Bates, and Carl Michael Vogler. It was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, from a script by Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North, who based their screenplay on the biography Patton, Ordeal and Triumph, by Varago and Omar Bradley's memoir, A Soldier Story. So, the film was shot in 65mm Dimension 150 by cinematographer Fred J. Honenkamp. Bloody fucking da. And has a music score by Jerry Goldsmith. Patton won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Scott won Best Actor for his portrayal of General Patton, but declined to accept the award. The opening monologue, delivered by George C. Scott as General Patton, with an enormous American flag behind him, remains an iconic and often quoted image in film. The film was successful, and in 2003, Patton was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The Academy Film Archive preserved Patton in 2003. So let's listen to Entracte from Patton. So, Gerald King, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, was an American composer and conductor, most known for his work in film and television scoring. He composed scores for such noteworthy films as Star Trek The Motion Picture 
and four more other Star Trek movies within the franchise. The Sand Pebbles, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Patton, Papillion, Chinatown, The Wind and the Lion, The Omen, The Boys from Brazil, Capricorn One, Alien, Outland, Poltergeist, The Secret of Nim, Gremlins, Hoosiers, shall I go on? Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Rudy, Air Force One, L.A. Confidential, Mulan, The Mummy, three Rambo films, and Explorers. There was music in the Rambo movies? Yeah, I think it's mostly machine gun music. Oh, okay. All right. Just making sure. <laughs> uh, he collaborated with some of the film history's most accomplished directors, including Robert Wise, Howard Hawks, Otto Preminger, Joe Dante, Richard Donner, Roman Polanski, Ridley Scott, Michael Winner, Steven Spielberg, and the list goes on and on and on. So his work for Richard Donner and Ridley Scott also involved a rejected score for Timeline, and a controversially edited score for Alien, where music by Howard Hansen replaced Goldsmith's end titles, and Goldsmith's own work on Freud, The Secret Passion, was used without his approval in several scenes. Wow, that dude, I mean, Ching? Yeah, he's a beast. I mean, he's he is like the man, he's one of the men in Hollywood. Yeah, and he, he had like, I want to say it was like 19 nominations for, you know, Golden Globes and Oscars and all this. He won one. I, I think when we I think when we did our Evercon episode, we did I because I did Next Generation, which was right. the sped up version of motion picture. Right. He was one of the most nominated but never winning. Right. He won one. And do you know what it was for? What music it was for? Oh god, I I remember mentioning Omen. That's right. I'm like, of all the movies and all the scores he did, that's the one. Now, don't get me wrong, the omen music is creepy as fuck. Oh, it is. But, but I'm sorry, but as a nerd, Star Trek definitely tops that. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I love this piece of music. You know, and this is it sets the stage. It's very militaristic, as we had mentioned before, and it fits a biopic about one of the most well-known U.S. generals. There's really not a whole hell of a lot to say about it. No, there's not. So why don't we move on? What do you got, sir? Next, we have the entrance of the gladiators by Julius Fusick, if that's how you pronounce that. I'm gonna go with. You don't want to know what I thought it was. I'm sure I don't, but I'm sure I already know. So, Julius F. Um, was a Czech composer born in 1872. He started his musical exposure early, learning to play bassoon, violin, and various percussion instruments, then later studied composition under Antonin Dvorak. At age 19, he joined the 49th Austro- Austro-Hungarian Regiment as military musician, and in 1894 left that to be second bassoonist, in the German theater in Prague. Bassoonist? Mm-hmm. Okay. That is one of the goofiest-looking instruments, though. They are. They really are. And they sound awesome. I love the sound of a bassoon, especially if you listen like Peter the Wolf or um, Sorcerer's Apprentice, for example. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he rejoined the army. At, okay, hold on. Uh, a year later, he ended up as a conductor of the Danica Choir in the city of Sisak. He rejoined the army as bandmaster of the 86th Infantry Regiment based out of Sarajevo in 1897, and shortly thereafter wrote his most famous piece, Engines of the Gladiators. He continued to write and lead all the way, moving through Europe, finally settling in Berlin in 1913, where he started his own band, the Prager, oh God, Tunkusler Orchestra, as well as music publishing company called Tempo Verlag, mainly to mark his own stuff. I mean, hey, if you, if you can't find anybody else to do it, you make your own label. Exactly. With World War One starting, his monetary situation started to go south, and due to privatations of the war, privatations, 
His business and health also failed. He passed away in 1916. He was also sometimes known as the Bohemian Sousa, and his material is still played in the Czech Republic as patriotic music. That's a pretty interesting and nice um, compliment, actually, because Sousa is one of the world most renowned. Right. Why don't we go ahead and sit back and take a little listen to the entrance of the Gladiators. Entrance to the Gladiators starts off very regal, it's, and then after it starts, it gets silly. I mean, it really does. It starts off, it gets kind of goofy, and you'll know as soon as it kicks in where you've heard this before. You may not know the title, but you know where it is. The Circus. Yeah. It's it's a good march for clowns. I'm not sure how well it would work for Gladiators or Military March, because I'm sorry, if I, if I was sitting on the battlefield and I heard this stuff playing as the enemy's marching forward, I'm like, I'd start laughing. I'm like, whatever. Like, I'm going to take you seriously. Exactly. So, what are, your, what are your thoughts? We've all heard the music. It's circus music. Send in the clowns. Usually used with, like, trapeze artists and the clowns. Uh, with a foreboding name like Entry of the Gladiators, they expected something completely different. I expected badass. I love circus music. I love everything about the circus except the clowns. You know, they can get rid of those creepy fuckers anytime. I think it's hilarious how some people are so afraid of clowns. I, I don't get it. I'm not afraid of clowns. Just not a, you, they, they make you uneasy. They do. They do. And I think it's because the face is completely obscured. And even when they got the big smiles painted on and everything, it feels so fake. Okay. I don't know. But anyway, that's a whole different topic. We'll, Absolutely. We'll, we'll dive into my psyche some other time. <laughs> well, that's going to have to be like a ten-part episode. I'd like to say fuck you, but you're probably right. <laughs> Prove me wrong. <laughs> All right, so what do you get next? Up next, I got Pomp and Circumstances, March number four by Edward Elgar. March number four is as upbeat and ceremonial as number one which is the one most people know, mm-hmm. containing another big tune in the central trio section. The trio was used by Elgar in a song called The King's Way, which he wrote to his wife's words. In celebration of the opening of an important new London street called King's Way in 1909, in World War II, number four also acquired words, a patriotic poem by A.P. Herbert with a refrain beginning, All Men Must Be Free, was used as Song of Liberty. In the wedding of Charles, Prince of Wales, and Lady Diana Spencer, Pomp and Circumstance Number 4 served as the recessional. As Diana's veil was lifted and the couple bowed and curtsied to Queen Elizabeth II, the opening notes sounded and continued as they walked down the aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral out to the portico and to the awaiting crowds. Let's Pomp and Circumstance.
March number four was completed on 7 June 1907 and dedicated to my friend Dr. G. Robertson Sinclair, Hereford. It was first performed on 24 August 1907 in the Queen's Hall, London, conducted by the composer. Sir Edward William Elgar, first baronet, uh, was an English composer, many of whose works have entered the British and international classical concert repertoire. Among his best-known comp compositions are orchestral works including the Enigma Variations, the Poppin' Circumstance Marches, cons Concertos for Violin and Cello, and two symphonies. He also composed choral works including The Dream of Geronotus, Chamber Music, and Songs. He, appointed, he was appointed Master of the King's Music in 1924. Although Elgar is often regarded as a typical English composer, most of his musical influences were not from England but from continental Europe. He felt himself to be an outsider, not only musically but socially. In musical circles dominated by academics, he was a self-taught composer. In Protestant Britain, his Roman Catholicism was regarded with suspicion in some quarters, and in the class-conscious society of Victorian and Edwardian Britain, he was acutely sensitive about his humble origins, even after he achieved recognition. He nevertheless married the daughter of a senior British army officer. She inspired him both musically and socially. But he struggled to achieve success until his 40s when, after a series of moderately successful works, his Enigma Variations, 1899, became immediately popular in Britain and overseas. He followed the variations with a choral work, The Dream of Geronotus, in 1900, based on a Roman Catholic text that caused some disquiet in the Anglican establishment in Britain. But it became, and has remained, a core repertory work in Britain and elsewhere. His later full-length religious choral works were well-received but have not entered the regular repertory. So everybody's familiar with Pomp and Circumstance number one. That's the one you hear at uh, graduations mm -hmm. and things like that. This one is actually more of a march, mm -hmm. if, you, if you ask me, compared to number one. Uh, but it is very upbeat. It is very um, happy almost. It's more marchy than the last part of number one. Because if you listen to the whole thing in number one, the first part of it is very, almost at a fair, but like a military fair. Okay. Um, and that's what I was going to mention here, too. It's a great march, and you mentioned already being a pr the processional for Charles and Diana. Um, it's not the most well-known. Again, that's number one, which the finale song, which is called Land of Hope and Glory, was the graduation one. Or for wrestling fans, was... Macho Man, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Macho Man did the entrance music for Pop and Circumstances, and this was a good march. I really enjoyed this. In fact, the only part that you only ever usually hear is number one. Right. So hearing the other parts, it was kind of neat to expand a little bit. So I enjoyed it. Excellent. All right. What do you got next? Next, we got Piano Sonata number two in B flat minor. Op uh, is, I don't know if it's opera or Operation Thirty Five. Opus. Sure. That's <laughs> whatever. Okay, so it's Op 35. It's Frederick Francois Chopin was a Polish composer and piano virtuoso. He was born in 1810, just west of Warsaw. Just before turning six months old, they moved to Warsaw and were housed at Warsaw Lyceum, which was part of the Saxon Palace. He got some piano instruction from his mom, but got professional tutored when he was six, who determined him to be a child prodigy. Cool. Nice, yeah. Even though he was nearly almost always sickly, he, he was amazing on the piano. 
He received organ lessons around 13 years of age to help increase his keyed knowledge, and just two years later, at age 15, his first commercially published work, Rondo in C Minor Op 1, was released in 1825 and dedicated to a family friend. Okay. While it was the finger quotes weaker than later as material, it's still the beginning of his composing career. Chopin continued to compose and moved around Poland until moving to Paris in 1831. In the big city, he was well-revered, and by the end of that year, he received his first huge endorsement by Robert Schumann. Regarding Op 2 variations, he stated, Hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Fair enough. That's, that's impressive. Nicely done. You know, while in Paris, he rubbed elbows with many of the famous composers of the time, Franz Liszt, Rossini, Mendelssohn, as well as his on-again, off-again romantic interest, French author George Sand, and which is a pen name for Amantine Lucille Aure Dupin. So, yeah, George was not a guy. Right. So, so in 1842, his health seriously started to decline, and due to which, so did his comp composition output. Finally, on October 17, 1849, Frederick Chopin passed away, succumbing to consumption, which is also known as tuberculosis. Now, okay, let's just go ahead and take a quick listen, because you, once you hear this, you may not know the title, but you know you're going to know what this is. So, Piano Sonata Number no. 2 in B-flat minor, Op 35, also known as the Funeral March. Yep. It has been used in tons of forms, tons of media, but none more than in cartoons. You know, when something dark is currently happening or about to happen or somebody dies, the music or some variation of it plays. It's the composition of the death period, which is why nearly everyone would recognize it. Maybe not by the name, again, but definitely by the music. It's so recognizable to death that a certain WWE dead man used an arrangement of it for his entrance music. And again, too, if anybody, if you hear this, you know it's about death. Yeah. Bottom absolutely. line, there's nothing else about it. So I enjoyed it. I, I actually knew this from one of my music classes in school, and I'm just like, oh, I gotta use this and see if you recognize it by the name or not. Uh, you know, I said, you know, this reminds me of the ever used trope of the March of the Grim Reaper. Death is coming, and you hope it's for someone other than yourself. This haunting music makes me shiver up and down the spine. It's a masterpiece of music. I say that it is well-written, and eerily romances death, almost. Kind of, yeah. I, I really like this piece of music. Um, and actually, I didn't know it by its name, because I picked it out, and I had it in my list of ones I was looking at. Oh, really? And I listened to it, and then I started listening to your list, and I'm like, Wait a damn second here. <laughs> so I made the I made the connection, but yeah, it was. Uh, I, it, I really it, enjoy the piece of music. And it does romanticize death, and it's almost it makes it regal. Yeah. You know, whereas as opposed to being like, guess what? We're just gonna pitch in the ground and call it a day. It's like, well, hey, there's something more important to it. Right. Right. So, what do you got next? All right. So up next, I have got the Wedding March by Felix Mendelssohn. So Felix Mendelssohn's Wedding March in C major, written in 1842, is one of the best known of the pieces of from his suite of incidental music, so Opus 61, to Shakespeare's play A Midsummer Night's Dream. 
It is one of the most frequently used wedding marches, generally being played on a church pipe organ. At weddings in many Western countries, this piece is commonly used as a recessional, though frequently stripped of its episodes in in this context. It is frequently teamed with the bridal chorus from Richard Wagner's opera, uh, Lohengrin, or with Jeremiah Clark's Prince of Denmark's March, both of which are often played for the entry of the bride. The first time that Mendelssohn's wedding march was used at a wedding was when Dorothy Carwoo wed Tom Daniel at St. Peter's Church, Tiverton, England, on 2 June 1847, when it was performed by organist Samuel Ray. However, it did not become popular at weddings until it was selected by Victoria, the Princess Royal, for her marriage to Prince Frederick William of Prussia, on 25 January 1858. The bride was the daughter of Queen Victoria, who loved Mendelssohn's music and for whom Mendelssohn often played while on his visits to Britain. An organ on which Mendelssohn gave recitals of the wedding march, among other works, is housed in St. Anne's Church in Tottenham. Well, here's the wedding march. So Jacob Ludwig Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi, widely known as Felix Mendelssohn, was a German composer, pianist, organist, and conductor of the early Romantic period. Mendelssohn wrote symphonies, concertos, oratorios, piano music, and chamber music. His best-known works include his overture and incidental music for A Midsummer Night's Dream, the Italian symphony, the Scottish symphony, and the overture, the... Hebrew, his mature violin concerto, and his string octet. His songs without words are his most famous solo piano compositions. After a long period of relative denigration due to changing musical taste and anti-Semitism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, his creative uh, originality had been reevaluated. He is now among the most popular composers of the Romantic era. A grandson of the philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn was born into a prominent Jewish family. He was brought up without religion until the age of seven, when he was baptized as a Reformed Christian. Felix was recognized early as a musical prodigy, but his parents were cautious and did not seek to capitalize on his talent. Well, that's different than parents nowadays. Yeah, no lie. So this is just that classic wedding march. I mean, this is the... Wedding march. Yeah, I mean, now people are using other things to try to stand out, but really, this is the you put wedding. What's the first thing that comes to mind? This is it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely done deal. And what can you really say? I mean, everyone's heard the same, even if they know didn't know who did it or what it's called or whatever the case is. Um, it's for a joyous occasion, but sometimes in retrospect, could be considered a funeral death march, depending on your wedding. <laughs> I suppose if you want to look at it that way. All right, man, what do you got next? All right, I'm going to go with the Liberty Bell March by John Philip Sousa. Now, anybody who knows marches knew we had to get Sousa in here eventually. Yep, and and you beat me to the punch. All right. Now, John Philip Sousa was an American composer and conductor that was born in 1854 in Washington, D.C. 
Hometown boy all the way. Yeah, quite literally. He began his music study playing violin at age six, where it was determined that he had absolute pitch, which means he could identify and recreate a music note without any reference tone. At six years old. That's insane. I can't do that. I'm 40 and I can't do that. You're 40. I'll be 41 in April, so you're... I'll be 42 in April. I mean, so yeah, you're only about a year older. Yeah. So you're like 40, you're like, what the hell, you lying bastard? So anyways, it is a rare thing to have, especially for someone who's only six years old. Now, he didn't just work with violin either. He learned voice, piano, flute, cornet, baritone horn, trombone, which his father played in the Marine Band, and alto horn. He was enlisted in the Marines by his father at age 13. Damn it, kid, you're getting on my nerves. Pretty much. Join the Marines. Well, you know, did you you read why he actually was put in the Marines? No. Because he wanted to run off and join the circus. (laughs) So to prevent him from going to the circus, they put him in the Marines. That's kind of damn hilarious if you think about it. It it is. One circus traded out for a different circus, but... Right. Now, he stayed until 1875. He went back to the USMC in 1880, and it was there where he learned to conduct and became the head of the U.S. Marine Band and led them until 1892. It was during that time he composed many marches, including the Washington Post, the Thunderer, and the still-used anthem of the USMC, Semper Fidelis. Even though it was older, he was commissioned into the U.S. Naval Reserve and went into the U.S. and went, excuse me, even though he was older, he was commissioned into the U.S. Naval Reserve when the U.S. went into World War I and served his service leading the Navy Band. He continued to compose and conduct even during wartime. His band, the President's Own, what kind of balls is that? Your band is called the President's Own. Played two inaugural balls. <laughs> the President's Own with inaugural balls. I'm sorry. I, I wrote this and I didn't realize it until afterwards. That's just terrible. <laughs> so, for Wait, you said you're 40? I'm going to call bullshit on that. I think you're like 15. Yeah, you're still laughing, so what's that about you? I'm laughing at you. Oh, sure you are. And that was for James Garfield and Benjamin Harrison. In 1893, J.W. Pepper created a modified helicon or helicon. Hey, wait, was he a doctor? Sure. Because then he'd be Dr. Pepper. And, and I'm the 15-year-old here. <laughs> Which, the helicon is like a weird little mini-tube, but using Sousa's suggestions, that was called the Sousaphone. In 1932, he died of heart failure the day after conducting a rehearsal of the Stars and Stripes Forever. Sousa is known as the American March King, American being tacked on because Kenneth Alford, the Colonel Bogey guy, was already known as the March King before him and for his mastery of military and patriotic marches. His works are world-renowned and are still played for military parades, gathering, and patriotic events, especially Independence Day celebrations. Why don't we go ahead and let the Liberty Bell toll for us here. So the Liberty Bell March is a rousing piece that was written for Seuss's incomplete due to funding operetta called The Devil's Deputy. It's named based on a joint suggestion by his band manager, George Hinton, and Seuss's wife. The manager and Seuss were watching a performance of America as the Liberty Bell was lowered in the background and the idea came up. And at the same time, his wife wrote Seuss mentioning that their son marched in a parade in honor of the Liberty Bell. 
Perfect. It's been played at five of the last seven presidential inaugurations. Clinton in 32, Bush Sr. in 2005, Obama in 09 and 13, and then Trump in 17. Pretty well known, obviously, for right. that one here. It uses tubular bells to symbolize the Liberty Bell ringing, and it's a fun, bouncy piece that Monty Python's Terry Gilliam chose to be the theme song for Monty Python's Flying Circus. Because the first strike of the bell gave the impression of getting straight down to business. Even before Monty Python, I enjoyed this piece mostly because I really enjoy Sousa's stuff, period. I mean, there's very few of his works that I don't like. It was really difficult, actually, to narrow down which Sousa one that I wanted, but this one cut because my other favorite one I think I'm going to save for a future show. Okay. I, I, I really dig this march. I think it's fantastic. I think it's pretty close to perfect. Okay. Well, John Philip Sousa is the American king of marches. And this one is no exception. He was able to compose music in ways that many before and since have only hoped to be able to do. Now, I wasn't overly familiar with this march in particular, but it definitely feels light and airy and has a definite march feel to it. I, I really enjoyed it. I really did. Did you recognize it as Flying Circus before you heard it or no? No, not at all. But then I'm sure it was one of the, was it like, oh, I know this one, or, or was it still Actually, known? no, because I'm not overly familiar with Flying Circus. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, know, I know it's out there, mm-hmm. but never really... Uh... Well, maybe we'll have to sit down and watch that some weekend, because i got the whole series. Oh, okay. That could be an entertaining, strangely compelling thing to do. Yeah, it could be fun. All Absolutely. right, so what's your, what's your last one? My last one is March of the Toreadors by George's Bazette. So... Carmen is an opera in four acts by French composer Georges Bazet. The Liberato was written by Henry Melhac and Ludwig Halevy, based on a novella of the same title by Prosper Merimi. The opera was first performed at the Opera Comanuc in Paris on 3 March 1875, where its breaking of convention shocked and scandalized its first audiences. Bizet died suddenly after the 33rd performance, unaware that the work would achieve international acclaim within the following 10 years. Carmen has since become one of the most popular and frequently performed operas in the classical canon. The Habanara from Act 1 and the Toreador song from Act 2 are among the best known of all operatic arias. The opera is written in the genre of opera comique with musical numbers separated by dialogue. It is set in southern Spain and tells the story of the downfall of Don Jose, a naive soldier who is seduced by the wiles of the fiery gypsy Carmen. Jose abandons his childhood sweetheart and deserts from his military duties, yet loses Carmen's love to the glamorous matador Escamillo, after which Jose kills her in jealous rage. The depictions of proletarian life, immorality, and lawlessness and the tragic death of the main character on stage broke new ground in French opera and were highly controversial. Let's listen to The Toreadors. George's Bazette, registered at birth as Alexandra... Alexander Caesar Leopold Bizet was a French composer of the Romantic era, best known for his operas in a career cut short by his early death. Bizet achieved few successes before his final work, Carmen, which has become one of the most popular and frequently performed works in the entire opera repertoire. 
During a brilliant student career at the Conservatory de Paris, Bizet won many prizes, including the prestigious Prix de Rome in 1857. He was recognized as an outstanding pianist, though he chose not to capitalize on this skill and rarely performed in public. Returning to Paris after almost three years in Italy, he found that the main Parisian opera theaters preferred the established classical repertoire to the works of newcomers. His keyboard and orchestral compositions were likewise largely ignored. As a result, his career stalled, and he earned his living mainly by arranging and transcribing the music of others. Restless for success, he began many theatrical projects during the 1860s, most of which were abandoned. Neither of his two operas that reached the stage in this time, uh, Les Pecures de Perles and La Jolie Filet de Perth, I'm hoping I'm saying those right, they're French, so giving it my best shot, people, were immediately successful. Bizet's marriage to Genevieve Halvé was intermittently happy and produced one son. After his death, his work, apart from Carmen, was generally neglected. Manuscripts were given away or lost, and published versions of his works were frequently revised and adapted by other hands. He founded no school and had no obvious disciplines or successors. After years of neglect, his work began to be performed more frequently in the 20th century. Later commentators have acclaimed him as a composer of brilliance and originality whose premature death was a significant loss to the French musical theater. This piece of music, everybody knows it. Whether you know it came from Carmen, whether you know it's called the March of the Toreadors, you know this piece of music. Right. And it's an amazing piece of music. I love the piece of music. I know very little about Carmen, but I know this music. So, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this one? Now, this, now is he if he's French, would that be Bizet? Maybe. I don't know. I've always heard it said Bizet, but... I don't know. Whatever. I mean, I don't speak with a French accent... You silly king. So, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, no, it's this one here, I wasn't sure if it was really a march or not, because it was from the Aria. Right. Um, regardless of what it is or is not, it's a great piece. Uh, it's one of the most well-known by Bizet. Sure. Got them both. Yeah. Bizet. Yeah, exactly. It's It's really fast-moving. It's motivational. It's kind of one of those that gets your blood moving. Right. You know, so, I mean, regardless of whatever the case is, it's loud. It just like explodes on the scene with just the, you know, big drum, big cymbals right at the beginning, and just gets you and doesn't let go until right. it's done. Yep, absolutely. So good piece. That's really all I got to say about that one. All right, what do you got last, man? All right, we're gonna finish out with a little John Williams. Uh huh. And <laughs> that is the Imperial March. John Towner Williams is a composer and conductor that was born in 1932 in Floral Park, New York. His first studying of composing was when he was privately tutored by Mario. Castanuevo Tedesco, who also tutored Jerry Goldsmith and Henry Mancini, um, among many others. And then in 1952, he was drafted into the U.S. Air Force, where he played piano, brass, and helped conduct and arrange music for the USAF band as part of his assignment. Okay. He got to attend a music course in University of Arizona, also as part of his assignment. Tough life. No shit, right? After leaving the service, he attended Juilliard to study piano and then later moved to Los Angeles, where he started as a session musician. One of his most prolific jobs being working with Henry Mancini on the Peter Gunn soundtrack. That's another piece that, even if you don't know the name, you've heard it before. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, he worked on many TV and film scores that got him acclaim. He was nominated for an Oscar in 1967's Valley of the Dolls and 1969's Goodbye Mr. Chips and The Reavers. 
and then won an Oscar for 1971's Fiddler on the Roof score. But he didn't truly strike gold until 1974. He met up with a gentleman who wanted him to compose his directorial debut music. Who was that director? Mm, can I say George Lucas? No. No? Steven Spielberg. But oh, you're on the right track. He worked on nearly all of Spielberg's films and branched out in other directors, as well as occasionally working on television themes. He did the theme for NBC Nightly News, which was taken from the movie The Mission, and he was also the guy that composed the music for the Olympics, which just started a few weeks ago, so likely you've probably heard that to death by now. Yep. He led the Boston Pops from 1980, succeeding Arthur Fiedler, until 1993, and he still composes and conducts to this day, one of the most recent being... Star, at Star Wars Celebration in Orlando, Williams performed a surprise concert with the Orlando Philharmonic Orchestra, where they played Princess Leia's theme as a tribute to the recently deceased Carrie Fisher, the Imperial March, and the Star Wars main theme, after which George Lucas commented, the secret sauce of Star Wars, the greatest composer-conductor in the universe, John Williams. Well said, Mr. Lucas. Now, John Williams has been nominated and won a ton of awards in his career. He's had 51 Oscar nods and won five, six Emmy nods, won three, 25 Golden Globe nods, won four, 67 Grammy nods, and won 23. Wow. His 51 Oscar nods, he's number two, the most nominated person in history, and the first being, what's your guess? I have no idea. Walt Disney. Oh, okay. Disney was actually nominated at 59, and he's at, what, what did I say, 50, 51 right now? So he's, I mean, if he's still composing, he could hit that. Oh, yeah. Suffice to say that his, tr his trophy room is far from empty. The Imperial March. Man, I mean, let's just listen to it because we all know this. This is a piece from Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, and as such, I had to do something with Star Wars. And you know what? It fits. Partially because it's called the March, and partially because it sounds like a march. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the main themes from The Empire, and as such, is played often, but it doesn't seem to get old. I personally can almost envision the troops marching on their way to complete their mission of destroying rebel scum. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is I love John Williams. He's probably one of my favorite modern composers of all time, and I don't have anything bad to say about the guy. He's impressive. Well, you hear the drums and the strings and the winds kick in, and you're transported to a galaxy far, far away. Ooh. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like this piece of music. This is what we were all given as the stunning proof that Darth Vader is on his way and most likely pissed off. Mm -hmm, yeah. You know, so great march, and it belongs on any list of marches. I I love this piece of music. It's it's one of those things, even though I've been known to be caught at times rooting for Darth Vader, you usually don't root for the bad guy, but this music... Tell that to all the Boba Fett fans out there. I don't, don't know even, why. Don't I, even get me started on those guys. I don't know why. I'm not a huge fan of Fett. I don't know. I don't know what, what everybody's fascination or fetish is with Fett. Aha! I like what you did there. But, you know, with that, why don't we wrap this up with me getting uh, another question wrong? All right. So, the question again was, John Philip Sousa, a.k.a. the American March King, served the U.S. Marine Corps. 
I'm just doing that to piss you off, by the way. It doesn't piss me off. Okay. Well, it probably, piss... it'll probably make some Marines mad, though. It'll, it'll piss Obama off. Eh, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> what rank did he reach? I'm taking a stab in the dark, and I'm going to say Colonel. Not correct. Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major. Yes, and that was for all playing music. That's all he did, was compose and play music. That's a good life, man. Absolutely. So you are now 14 and 13. Next week is, well, let's tell what I talk about next week. Let's just break it in here. We're going to stick with hard-to-pronounce names. Yeah, we're, we're going to do a little classical music next week. But let's do this here. Let's, let's wrap this up and get the hell out of here. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. If you want to reach out to us, let us know if you like this episode or any of the other episodes we do, or if you hate this episode or any of the other episodes we can that we do. You can do that easily in several different ways. First of all, through email, you can reach us at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or also at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. Otherwise, if you're more into the social media stuff, you can find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Musically Challenged Podcast. Either way, drop us a line. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And, of course, there is the third way. And, Lou, you want to tell us about that? That is going to be Twitter. Now, we are on there at, at MCPodcast17. Um, honestly, last week I'm not sure if I actually talked about the 1-7 part of it. So, yeah, if you can't get a hold of us because they gave you the wrong directions, sorry. But this week I'll tell you the right thing, and that's at, at MCPodcast17. Again, send us... If you want hate mail, love mail, whatever you want to do. If you want to send us 14 artists with 14 different songs with a theme, great. If not a theme, that's cool, too. We'll listen to them. We'll put your name up there and talk about them, and hopefully we like your music. And even if you didn't give them the right thing, in the liner notes, it will say the 17, so we'll be good. Okay. Well, you can hate me for that, too, if you want. So <laughs> so either way, we want to thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. have been listening to a program from the point of insanity network visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows follow us on facebook and follow us on twitter at poigamestudio.com